So this morning, again, everything about this morning is just a little bit different. Um, so this morning, I'm going to take some time. Next week, we will jump back into a series that we started in the fall, which is called The Gospel Shapes, and how we understand how the good news of what Jesus has done touches every part of our lives. But today, I want to talk about where are we going in 2020? What is the direction where we're heading? And when you hear that, that, that kind of that question or that statement about where we're going, the default is this. Okay, well, what are we doing as a church? What new programs are we launching or new ministries are we going to do or what events are we going to do? And we hear about that in announcements all the time and things like that. But, but if you really think about where is the church going in 2020, the question isn't where is the leadership or the structure or the ministries or the programs. The church is none of those. The church is us. The church is people. The church has been people for 2,000 years. It's never been a building or a structure or leadership. It's always been the people. And there's something that happens when the church becomes the church, not meaning the church attends church or the church belongs to church. It's when the church becomes the church every single day. The church is not the church when we show up on Sunday. The church is tomorrow. It's Tuesday. It's Wednesday. It's Thursday. It's wherever you are. We're the church. So what we do determines what the church is, not what we do on Sunday morning. So really the question is not, what is the church structure going to do this year? What programs are going to have? But the question is, what are you going to do this year? What are we going to do this year? Where are we going individually? Because ultimately that determines where we go as a church. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. So, so this morning I want to take some time, and this is more a reflective kind of a challenge for us individually to start thinking through, where is God calling me this year? What am I supposed to be doing? What are the things I'm supposed to be considering? But I want to give us kind of a framework because you're doing this in the context of Antioch Church, the church that either you're attending for the first time today or that you're a part of. So what's the lens that we would look through collectively to say, God, where are you leading us this year? What's the direction you have for us? It's through the identity that God has given us. And there's three things that are important about that identity. With, like, for. Anybody heard of those before? They're on the wall outside. That's the reminder for us every Sunday or every week when you walk in this building. But those three things shape where we go individually as well as where we go collectively. What are those three things, really briefly? So the word like is, is a simplified term of understanding, or excuse me, the word with, of understanding the concept that the Bible calls reconciliation. So we are disconnected from God because of our own choices in life. Because we tell God, thanks for the advice, but I'm going to choose to do it my way, the way I see fit, what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. And then we do it, and then we fail. And so what are we? We are disconnected, unreconciled with God. Being with God or with Jesus is being reconnected with the one who created us, which means that's where we find flourishing and fulfillment and contentment and purpose. Why? When we're reconnected with God. So why do we exist? Individually and collectively, to live out lives that are reconnected with God while we help other people to find their connection with God. So that's who we are. So that's the first one we'll kind of talk about. The second one is the idea of like, which is to be like Jesus, which is the biblical term discipleship. And that is, if we are a follower of Jesus, then our, our life, our character, our words, our thoughts start to reflect who Jesus is. That's the natural outcome. So what is my life supposed to look like this year in terms of how is it supposed to look more like Jesus, less like the culture of the world that I live in? And then there's the third one, which is the ultimate goal of any person who's a follower of Jesus is for Jesus. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live self-centered lives. We live, what, for the purpose of God's glory. That's the ultimate statement of what somebody does when they follow Jesus is that they no longer live for themselves. They live for somebody greater than them. So looking through those things as the lens for our lives this year, that's what I want to talk about. Where are we headed? Where are we going? So some, some questions to reflect on, some areas to look at. 
Go ahead, take a look at the screens, because the first category is understanding the concept of with Jesus, which means being reconnected with God. So the foundational passage for this that I've preached a number of times, in fact, I touched on this passage during our Christmas series, but let me read it again, because this is the reminder of what God has done for us and then what God calls us to do for other people. So the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Excuse me. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, making God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the Apostle Paul is telling us, you've been reconnected with God, and now you become ambassadors to reconnect other people with God who are disconnected from him. That's, that's the primary, one of the primary roles of who we are. Now this is important. Two questions to consider. The first one is this. In your life, who needs to be connected to God? Who needs to, in your personal sphere of influence, in your relationship, who needs to be connected to God? Who needs to be reconnected with God? around you why is this significant because there's a it's a rhetorical question everybody needs to be reconnected with god that's the gospel that's why jesus came that's why after after adam and eve lost the connection with god in the garden all of human history is unfolding with god reaching down to humanity to somehow reconnect creation and humanity back to god and the ultimate act is jesus death and resurrection that brings us back into relationship with god because he pays for our sin so that's the question for us. Why is this important? Because we live increasingly in a culture that is increasingly disconnected from God. So here's some, some sobering statistics. Recent study came out that says there's about 45% of the residents of Simi Valley, this is probably true for Moorpark, Thousand Oaks, other areas, claim some religious affiliation. That's good, 45%, that's almost half. But here's the reality, about 10% would be classified as, I know this is a loaded term, but as evangelical Christians, which means believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that Jesus is God in human flesh. All the, the historic Christian beliefs that we believe, 10%, 10%. That's about 12 to 13,000 people in our city of a city of 125,000 people, 10%. Like, oh, wait a second, how many people, it's, I mean, there's churches in Simi Valley, yeah, but people who actually are followers of Jesus, it's 10%. That means that chances are wherever you live, nine out of 10 people are disconnected from God. That's where we live. This is increasing across the board. Second thing, this is also evidence in the lives of people. Since 2015, there's been a 60% increase in opioid-related deaths in our county. 60%. We have a problem. And ultimately, the problem is not a drug problem. The problem is a Jesus issue. Because we can get people clean from substances, but you can't transform the human soul. People need Jesus, and we're surrounded by that. So what do you do? How do you connect people to God? Well, think about that. There's people that you live around. There's, there's neighbors. There's coworkers. There's people you go to school with. There's family members that you wish somebody else would witness to, so they would come to know Jesus because you're estranged from them and you don't want to be around them. But there's people everywhere that need to know Jesus. So here's the key. How do we get people connected to Jesus? We have to have a passion for Jesus in the first place. That God has done something so profound in our lives that we can't, 
We can't not tell people. We not, can't not demonstrate that God has done something in our life. It doesn't mean that you become some raving evangelist that stands on a street corner and tells people about Jesus. It's the way you live your life with passion, following Jesus every day that speaks volumes. So listen to somebody who sets a perfect example for us. One of Jesus' first followers. We know him as Matthew in this passage. He's, passage he's called Levi. Listen to what his response was and how he helped connect people to Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 29, it says, After this he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, as we know him, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. What did he do? He was so overwhelmed with what Jesus had done in his life, he threw a party for all his sinner friends. And then invited Jesus over and told all his friends, you got to meet this guy. you got to meet this guy. So remember, this is, this is Matthew, a tax collector, who's very wealthy and very corrupt. And so who did he hang out with? Very wealthy, corrupt people. And when he, they saw that he walked away from all of that, he said, you got to come see this guy named Jesus. So he invited all of his friends over. Why? Because he so was transformed by Jesus, he couldn't help it. And that begs a question for you and I. Am I that passionate about Jesus in my life? Is God's grace that good in my life that actually I can't contain it? I have to include people in how good God is because he's not just good to me, he's good through me, and I care enough to reach out to other people because this is the question for us this year. Who is it that needs to be reconnected to God, that God's calling you to be the person that brings the connection? if we had passion about what God is doing. Interesting thing that's happened over the last month in our church. I've never seen it in the seven years I've been here. So what happened at our men's retreat with Jamie Winship and True Identity was so transformative for 35 guys that as we've announced this over the last few weeks, this True Identity thing coming up in February, we have up to about, I think we're all close to 150 adults registered. We've never had that many adults registered for any event since I've been here. And you know where it's come from? I've watched guys go say, I got five of my friends. I got my entire family coming. I've bugged all these guys at the church. And, and the wives are like, hey, we want to come. And so they're telling their friends. And we have all these people and just this natural, what, passion. Why? Because I've been so transformed to first, for the first time in my life, I could hear from God and I know who I am. You walk away from that kind of stuff. It transforms your life and you can't be silent. The last time I checked, Jesus is just a little bit more important than Jamie Winship. What has Jesus done in your life? What transformative thing has he done in your life that other people need to know about and you need to find a way to connect with them to get them to Jesus? Because this is what's been happening for thousands of years and the city that we live in is desperate for it. Second question to consider. How am I going to help people get connected to God? And here's the question. So let me just set this up. The best times for you to bring somebody to church any Sunday, anybody who doesn't know Jesus is always welcome to Antioch, but the best times that they're going to hear the gospel as clear as you can get it is Christmas and Easter. And so I know I'm, I'm not a big person about inviting people to church. Why? Because I believe the most effective way to reach people is not bringing them to church on Sunday and then having to translate what they're hearing is but for you to live out the gospel in front of them. But there are two times on, in, in our calendar that I am encouraging you this year. I would like, no, I'm not going for attendance numbers. I want to see more non-Christians here on Easter and Christmas than we've ever had. Because the gospel is so clear. And it's geared, by the way, if you come on Christmas and Easter and you're a Christian, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I'm talking to people who don't know Jesus. But beyond that, we understand that in your sphere of influence, how are you 
going to connect people with Jesus. And here's what I'm going to tell you. It's the primary way is not going to be inviting them to church. That was 20 years ago in the church. People do come to church by invite, but not as much as they used to. Why? Because the church has got a negative reputation culture. So what has to happen? And here's the one key element that is what happened 2,000 years ago. It's what Matthew did. It's what people are doing today that is actually finding fruit and effectiveness in reaching people. Intentional presence. It's the word the Bible uses. We use this big word to describe it. It's called being incarnational. It's Jesus not saying, oh, hey, sinners and human beings, find your way back up to me, up into heaven. No, what did Jesus do? Intentional presence. He came into the world and became one of us. So how do you reach people? You have to be in their lives. And here's the danger. The longer you know Jesus, the more Christianized your relationships become. And before you know it, you're in the bubble. And all your vital relationships are all people who think like you, act like you, believe like you. And you can't think of one non-Christian that you have a vital, not an acquaintance, not a neighbor that you wave at as you're driving out of your driveway, an actual person who you know their story and they know your story and that you would consider them to be your friend. That means you have to fight your way out of the bubble. You have to intentionally go where people are that don't know Jesus. So here's the question. Where is God calling you to go to be intentionally present with people? Is it in your neighborhood? Is it your job? Is it your school? Is it even your own family? Who is it that God is calling you to reconnect back to him? Here's what I've been convinced of. If this year you connected with one person intentionally and helped them find their way to Jesus, and let's just say that we shot at 50%, we would have about 200 new believers in our church next year at this time. Not because the church did a program, because the church was the church. And we live in a city where 90% don't have a vital relationship with Jesus. Okay, I'll move on. Get the point? Second thing, concept of like Jesus, which is being like him, which is living like him, acting like him, and reflecting who he is. So the concept of this lens to look through, the best verse to describe, I think, what it is to be a follower of Jesus is what John writes in 1 John 2, 5, and 6. He says this, This is how we know we are in him, talking about Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. We look like him, we act like him, and think like him in our lives. Two questions to consider. Where do I need to become more like Jesus? Where do I look at my life and I don't reflect the character of who Jesus is, the nature of who Jesus is? Why is this important? Just so you know, and, and most of you know, I just finished my, my, my degree program a couple weeks ago, and, and I did a capstone project, was, which was on transformational discipleship. Why, how do we help people experience change? And Barna did some research, which is one of the best uh, research organizations in the world, and they discovered something that shocked me. <clears throat> this is a few years ago it came out, but this is the statistic. In the U.S., only 14% of those who identify as Christians actually ex exhibit behavior that is considered to be consistent with the actions and attitudes of Jesus. 14%. So when, when somebody sees your life or they look at a Christian, most of the Christians they're looking at don't look like Jesus. And that's why a long time ago, one of the main Hindu religious leaders named Mahatma Gandhi, which many people know, had this profound statement. If you remember, he said this, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. See, he was looking for proof. You can tell me all you want to tell me about Jesus, 
why don't you show me Jesus? And then I'll listen. That's what the world, by the way, this is where we find ourselves. And this is, I've watched this change in my lifetime. The world looks at the church and says, prove it. You're no different than we are. You have the same problems and the same issues we do. Why should I come to Jesus when you're just as divided as we are, as you're just as judgmental as we are, as you're just as broken and just addicted? And just, you're, there's no difference in you than in us. So what more do you have to offer us? The transforming work of Jesus. Not us working harder, which I'll talk about that in a moment. If people only had my life to define who Jesus is, how would they define Jesus? They would define Jesus the way that we live our lives. We should be able to say this. This is one of the most intimidating things, but the Apostle Paul said it, and we should be able to say it. He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Ooh. He's not saying, look at me, I'm perfect. He's saying, look at me, as I strive to follow Jesus, you can look at my life as a lens to see what Jesus looks like as I strive to follow him. Can we confidently say that, say that to people around us? We should be able to. So here's the question. I don't know what it is for you, but the, the, your answer is going to be different than mine. But ask the question, where in my life is God calling me to look more like Jesus this year? You don't have to have a list of 10 things, but you may have to have one thing that's really important. One area that, that needs to be touched, that needs to be addressed. One thing. So I'll tell you, last year around this time, I'll tell you the one thing that was for me that God was pressing in on. And I've talked a little bit about this over this last year. It was the concept of rest and Sabbath. And it's interesting, you know, that we, we as Christians, we think that the, the, the Sabbath is an Old Testament law that we no longer have to really think about. Not true. In fact, Jesus honored the Sabbath. Jesus took Sabbath. In fact, Jesus rested. In fact, if it's embedded in, in humanity, it's embedded in the creation story. Remember what God did? For six days, he did what? He created on the seventh day, he rested. Why? This is God, the God of the universe. He demonstrated the normal human rhythm that we fi figure that we ignore. I've heard Christians say, well, all my rest is in eternity when I die and go be with Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus was Sabbathing when he was on the planet, which means there was one day a week where he abstained from work to be refreshed. They're like, oh, Pastor John, you don't know my schedule. You don't know my schedule. Yeah, well, my schedule about a year and a half ago was unhealthy because we took a day off. Kim and I would take a day off, but we would still work. We would still do stuff for the church. We would still get a bunch of stuff done, all the personal items. Everything that we couldn't get done in the other six was catch up on the seventh day. And we would do that. And we thought, oh, we're, we're Sabbathing. We'll rest. We didn't do, go to the office today. We didn't do that until we realized that Sabbath means rest. And rest means I don't work, period. And that was hard. We're like, wait, a whole day? And so now for the last year, every Friday, we're about 80% is where we're at. We've done it about 80% of the time this year, which is pretty good. We've honored a Sabbath, which means I don't answer my phone. I don't answer text messages. I don't come into the office. The only way I respond to anything ministry-wise is if somebody's in a critical situation in the hospital or died. Other than that, Kim and I don't do any work. And here's what's happened. It's amazing. Over the last year, I, this was the most intense year. This last year was the most intense year of my life, finishing up my degree. I was more effective in six days than seven. How does that work? Maybe because God knows something I don't. That if I'm rested uh, one day a week, I'm better in the six, rest six days of the week. So that was for me, it was a conviction. Why? I'm doing simply what Jesus did. Jesus Sabbathed. So who am I to say, I don't need to? If Jesus, the God in human flesh did it, then 
I should do it as well. So what is it for you? What is it for you? Before, this, this is the, the second question that's a part of that. This is what I want you to think because I want to qualify this. This is really important. The second question to consider in terms of being like Jesus is, how am I going to become more like Jesus? Now, when I ask that question right away, many of you in the room default to, I got to work harder. I got to do more. Got to be better for Jesus, right? That's a misnomer. Let me, let me explain something that I believe for years and years until about two or three years ago, I started to see the light on this one. To be more like Jesus doesn't mean that I do more things like Jesus. To be more like Jesus means I live, like, like John said in 1 first, first John, to live as Jesus lived. John did not say do as Jesus did. He said live as Jesus lived. What is he saying? He's saying the reason that Jesus could do miracles and the reason that Jesus is the ultimate uh, ideal of what humanity looks like is because there was a rhythm of life that Jesus lived in that many of us don't live in. There are things that Jesus practiced that we don't like to practice. And the, the health in his own life was an outflow of what he gained from living a rhythm of life. And, we, and, and over the centuries, the church has formed around these, and then we forget them, and we go back and forth. And it's, you can look in church history, and this is one of the reasons why. We have a term for them, and I think it's a bad term, but it's an accurate term, but it's a bad term. It's called spiritual disciplines. The moment you say the word discipline, we're like, oh, I'm out. Because what is discipline? Doing something I don't want to do, right? So like all of our New Year's resolutions were a few days in, right? Like, ah, this year I'm going to really do this. I don't want to, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to be disciplined. And then what? At the end of January, we're all going to be repenting for failing, right? That's how it works. But what is a spiritual discipline? It's a rhythm of life that makes room for connection with God. If you don't think that's true, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and don't look at the miracles that Jesus did. Don't look at his teaching. Look at what he did in his life. Before Jesus ever did one miracle, do you know what he did first? He fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't do anything before that. What was he doing? He was spending time with the Father to have a deep, intimate connection of by which he would be able to minister out of. And then if you look throughout his ministry, there are times it said Jesus withdrew to a solitary place, which, which means what? He hit the eject button on life and said, I am stepping back, what? To be with the Father, to pray. And he fasted and he prayed and we know he knew scripture and he was embedded in scripture and he did these things ongoing. And in that rhythm of life, you see the outflow in how Jesus lived. The reason I bring that up is that to be more like Jesus is not to do more of what Jesus did. It's to live more like Jesus. It's to establish a new way of life, a new rhythm of life that makes room for God to do what he wants to do in us. We live such fast-paced lives, we don't sit long enough to listen to God. And Jesus had intimacy with the Father, and out of that flowed who he was. And that's, I've had, I was talking to people in between service, they're like, I, one person told me they actually went away and took a block of time and, and took a trip by themselves and it profoundly transformed their lives just to be with God. So what is the rhythm God's calling you to? What is the discipline God's calling you to? And we will talk more about that over this next year about not doing more but living in the rhythm of life that Jesus wants us to live in that will produce the fruit he has for us. Dallas Willard, who is probably one of the most foremost experts or was one of the foremost experts on spiritual discipline says this he said spiritual transformation or change is produced not by attempting to do things that jesus did but by living in the rhythm of life that jesus lived through spiritual disciplines that is so true there's a there's a way of life that he calls us to live and then there's the final thing is this 
So it's with Jesus, like Jesus, and then for Jesus. That ultimately, the question is, how will I live my life in worship to God this year? How will it be about him and not about me? Let me read the four, just four verses that highlight a key theme that you will find throughout Scripture, but we don't have time to go through all the passages. But here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, not to the glory of self. Why is that important? Our culture currently, and we live in this culture, and we get, we get kind of saturated with the culture, is intoxicated with fame. That is the drug of choice today. If you don't believe me, turn your TV on tonight and watch the Golden Globes. Because every individual strives, what? To be bigger and better than last year. To be more known. Look at social media. Social media is driven by fame. I want to be known. And that's why recently when Instagram took away likes that people could see publicly, businesses and celebrities got upset. Why? Because the only reason they're on Instagram is what? So how many people will like them so that they feel significant and they have fame? What is that? That is a self-centered, driven life that is about your glory, not about the glory of God. You were never, we were never created to bring glory to ourselves. Never. We were created to bring glory to God. And there's a phrase the Bible uses to describe this. Let me read it in the rest of these passages. Psalm 23, verse 3. It says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. God leads you into right living, not for you. He does it for Him, for His glory. Psalm 106, verse 8. Yet He saved them for His name's sake that He might make known His mighty power. He saved people. Why? To save people? Yeah, He loves people, but He saved it. Why? For His name's sake. So people could see he's God. First John chapter 2, verse 12. Your sins are forgiven. Why? For his name's sake. God does miraculous, transforming work of saving sinners and forgiving sin. Why? To bring glory to him. You think, some people think, well, that's really egotistical for God to be so self-centered. If you're perfect and you have always existed and there has no flaw in you, you have the right to accept glory. And there's only one being in all of existence that has that, and it's God himself. And that's why he created us. Because you will discover when you live a life of fame for God instead of a life for fame for yourself, you'll find more fulfillment, more contentment, more flourishing, more purpose in your life than you've ever had before. Because the Bible is very clear. When you do something for yourself, whatever pat on the back you get in the moment is all you'll ever get. But you'll find meaning and purpose when you do it for God. Why? Because not only will you experience this, this contentment inside of you that you're reflecting God's glory, but on the other side of this life, what the Bible tells us is that that's when you reap the benefit, not in this life. And that's why the rude awakening on the other side of death is when you've been everything in this world, you find out that you're nothing in the next world. And that's all that you've received. But let me ask a couple questions in regard to this concept of living for Jesus. First one is this. Where is my life most about my namesake, not his, but about me, about what I, what I want, about what I want to do. Here's the beauty of the way God works. God takes all of who you are to bring glory to, you, to him. So this means, so some people think, man, if I just could be better at this or I could do this, then I could bring glory to God because I would be the best. And people would say, look, God only does this and works out the best. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God brings glory to us, through us, to him through every aspect of our lives. Victory, defeat, the best and the worst, in righteousness and in sin, God still brings glory to himself. See, we always think that glory means you get glory when you do the best. That's right. Anybody watch any college football the last couple weeks? Like OD on college football, right? 
Okay, you guys need to watch college football. Three of you, right? Three of you. Okay, the three of you I'm talking to you, okay? So you watch interviews after. They always interview. Isn't it interesting? They always interview the people who win. And I watched it, college players. Oh, I got to give glory to God. That's great. I want the interview when you lose. Is God give the glory in your, in your loss? No, it's the referees or the coach or the, you know, whatever it is. But even when you lose, God still wins through you. Listen to what, this is, this is really important because God's glory comes through your life in all different aspects and forms. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And of all people, the Apostle Paul understood this. Remember, he said he is the what? He was the chief of sinners. He was the worst of sinners. But listen to what he says. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So God is reflecting through us. In verse 7, but we have this treasure, God's glory, coming out of us in what? Jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul writes that because he says, listen, you're, and this is no, no offense to anybody, you're a jar of clay. A jar of clay, what is common, is fragile, is breakable. But what the jar holds is what is valuable. And the jar finds its value in what it emanates from inside. So what Paul is saying and what he's saying to us, God's glory comes through even the brokenness of our lives. God demonstrates. That's why he says what? He forgives our sin for his name's sake. So when the world looks at a broken person, they don't see their sin. They see the glory of God shining through them that God could redeem and save and transform that broken of a person that's the story that the world's looking for, is that I'm broken and I'm looking for an answer to my brokenness and I look at the church. Is that the place that I should look? Yes, <laughs> if we, the church, are being the church and we're living out the glory of God in our lives. So this year, there's probably a decision that you'll make that you may think either it may be significant in the moment, it may not be, but it's something that will shape who you are in the future. It'll transform your life. And it's the decision to say, okay, God, I'm going to say yes to this, even though it may be something small or it may be something big, but it becomes, begins to shape your life because you say yes to something that is not about you, and then God begins to use it for his glory. God is just waiting for a decision for us to surrender. That's all he's waiting for, so that he can use this for his glory. So here's an, here's, here's an example of this. So a couple weeks ago, Kim and I went to, it's probably about three weeks ago now, we went to foster care training, which we do periodically, and it was actually a debut of a movie, movie called Foster. And it was put out by HBO, and, and I've seen a lot of films on foster care, and, and it's probably the best film I've ever seen on foster care. And it was a do documentary well done, actually, uh, on the, the, the Ventura, or the, the L.A. County foster care system, which has 33 to 35,000 at any given time kids in the system. So they interviewed everybody. They interviewed social workers. They interviewed teens that were aging out. They interviewed foster families. They interviewed everybody. It was really interesting. And they did a really good job of kind of helping you kind of get in the world of each person. But I'll tell you, the one person that stood out to me was this, this woman named Mrs. Beaver. She lives in L.A. And 25 years ago, this is a single woman, she made a decision. She said, I can take a child into my life. I can bring one kid into my home. And so she said yes, and she went through the training, and she said yes to L.A. County, and they gave her a placement, and before you know it, they gave her two placements, and they said, how many more beds do you have? And before you know it, she has four placements, and this is the way fo the foster care system works. And so, so that was 25 years ago. She's in this film. To date, she has had more than 1,000 kids come through her house. 1,000. She's adopted some of them, 
And here's the most amazing thing is that every child that comes into her house, they get to experience the love of Jesus through her life. She teaches them how to pray. She opens up the Bible with them. And so whether they're there for a month or for three years, they're hearing about who Jesus is and they're seeing it in her life. The coolest part of watching that film is when the, the movie ended, they had about six of the people who were in the film, we didn't know that, that were there. And they got up on stage and they got a standing ovation and one of them was Mrs. Beavers. And she came up and she just shared, she goes, listen, this is not easy. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do. She said, it's not, it's not a, you know, there's not these great stories every time. She goes, there's kids that I've lost, kids I've lost to the streets, to addiction or to prison. She said, but I know that I've had an impact in these kids' lives. I've done something. And that is what her decision was. I'll take one child and now a thousand kids later. What is God calling you to do? This is, this is my dream for our church. The church is not what comes from me. The church is not what comes from leadership. The church is not what comes from programs. The church is the church. The church is the church deciding to do what God's called us to do. That's how ministry and mission happens. So, Skid Row, Laundry Love, Samaritan Center, Community Pregnancy Clinic, anything else, Connect to in Haiti, all of those things that we either do or partner with, guess how they started? One person. One person. One person said, okay, Jesus, I'll agree to do this. The reason we're in Haiti is because of a man named Greg Barshaw, who after the earthquake in Haiti decided to go down there and physically start rebuilding churches, and God blew the door open for church planting and orphan care. One person. So the question is, what is God saying to you? What does God want you to do? There are things that want God wants to do because the beauty of the church is not the programs. The beauty of the church is when the church gets mobilized to be the church. And this is the year, 2020, that God may be calling and may be stirring on you that you've seen a need in our community. Instead of going to the church and saying, hey, we need to, God says, no, you need to because you're the church. And when you do that, guess what will happen? Lives will be changed, including yours. That's how God works. God works through individuals first. Oh, we want a movement. A movement always starts with one person. And that's how God works in our life. So the final question is this. What am I going to do for his name's sake this year? What am I going to do? Now hear me on this, and we're, we're going to, in fact, the worship team, you can come and join me. We're going we're to sing one last song as we go into communion to conclude our service. But here, here's what I want us to understand. We live in God's grace. That means that God has chosen to forgive us, to transform us, to save us, not because of anything that we've ever done, only because of his goodness and his love towards us. So that means that what I did in the past, what I did yesterday, even what I do today, God forgives me for. And you know what it also means? God forgives me for tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. Now, I'm not planning on sinning, but I know I'm human and I will, but God covers me. That means that God won in my past and God's going to win in my future. Why? Because he's going to forgive every point of sin in my life. So I'm living, I'm living on, on borrowed time. I'm living on somebody else's dime. I'm living on Jesus' sacrifice. He sacrificed on the cross to pay for my sin. So I'm faced with this question. I am not earning my salvation. I will die and go see Jesus someday, whether I am the best person or the worst person, because I continue to ask for his forgiveness. But here's the reality. What am I doing with his grace? What am I doing with a second chance at life? See, it's not enough for us just to live the same year, year in and year out. To do the same thing I did last year. To live the same rhythm of life. To, to be involved in the same failures without 
trying to find a way forward, to live in the same rhythm of comfort that, again, makes it more about me than about what God is doing in the world. As a follower of Jesus, we can never leave this, live the same year twice. And if we live the same year twice, we're not living into his grace. Why? Because we're living on his time. He's given us life. And if we have life in our breath, he says you're not done yet. Because Jesus determines the times and places and the length of time that you live. And if you still have breath in your lungs, he's saying you're not done yet. Because I'm not done with the world. So in a moment, we're going to go to the stations around the room. There's two in the back and two in the front. If you need a gluten-free option, there's one in the corner back here. But I want you to know this, this is, the thing that we're doing is the very thing Jesus asked us to do 2,000 years ago, and we still do today. He took the bread and the cup at the Last Supper, and he told his disciples, you need to do this, to take the bread and the cup often to remember me, because you're going to forget. You're going to forget you live under grace. You've been given a shot at life for the second time, and now I want you to live it out. So let me, let me close with this and then I'm going to pray. One of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen in any movie is now what's considered a classic. In Saving Private Ryan, the whole point of the movie was to, to get some brothers out of war because two of them died and the third one that was the only survivor, they had to get him out to try to somehow save their mom's sorrow. Private Ryan. And if you don't know the film, I'm going to ruin it for you right now, okay? They do get him out, by the way. But Tom Hanks, in, in one of the final scenes who was the captain who led this brigade of guys to go and save Private Ryan. He's been shot and he's dying. This is his last breath. And he pulls Private Ryan close to him because all the guys that went in after him are now dead, but Private Ryan's alive. And he whispers in his ear, he says, earn this. Earn the sacrifice that we've given to you. We've given you a shot at life again. Now earn it. Now, I use that not to say, okay, now go earn your salvation. That's, we can't do that. But we've got another shot at life. The end of that movie ends with an old Private Ryan at the grave of John Miller, the captain who saved his life, asking the question, have I lived a good life? Have I honored your sacrifice? Have I done everything I could to know that I had a second chance of life because you gave yours for me? Someday I want to face Jesus and say, Jesus, did I do everything I could do to honor the sacrifice? I know that I'm in. I know that you saved me. I know that I'm saved by grace. But did I honor you with my life? Because you gave me a second shot at life. That's the question this year. What is the question for you? Not for us, the church structurally, but us for the church individually. What is God calling you to do this year? What's different from last year to this year that God's calling you to do? So I'm going to pray, but we're going to come to the table because this is the beauty of the, of the cross. God forgives us for last year and gives us hope for this next year. That this year can be different than last year. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your sacrifice. That you loved us enough to become human, to live in what it fully means to be human, to be tempted to suffer physically, to be rejected, yet to do it in such a perfect and beautiful way. And then, even though in your perfection, you would take all of our sin on you, all of our things that disconnected us from God, and you would take that and pay for it so that we could all be reconnected to God again. We could find the reason that we're alive. We can be fully human again because we're connected to our Creator. So, Lord, as we partake of the bread and the cup, Lord, your body broken and your blood shed for us today, would you remind us of the forgiveness that you've brought in our past? 
And then would you give us, Lord, would you give us a vision for the future for our individual lives? Lord, who are you calling us to reconnect to you? How is our life supposed to look more like you? And ultimately, Lord, how can we make sure that we live for your name's sake? In Jesus' name.